Advanced Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Rotelli. Today on the show, we have Quint Kesnick. If you've been watching lacrosse for the past 20 years or so, you have watched uh, and listened to Quint. He's been the lead analyst for ESPN, and prior to that was a four-time All-American goalie at Johns Hopkins. Quint, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Chris, doing well, getting excited for uh, the stretch run now with the end of the regular season and then and then the playoffs in May. Yeah, what an exciting time for college lacrosse. We're about 10 days away from Selection Sunday. Uh, the This week's national top 20 poll came out, Penn State's one, Maryland two, Duke three, and Penn four. You think those are the four teams that end up going to the Final Four this year? Oh, I, I don't know about that. After seeing Penn State last weekend, though, I think they're they're the they're the favorite. It's hard to bet against Yale in the tournament with with TD Erlen winning so many faceoffs, and you have a team that you know has the experience of, of winning from last year. But then after that, I mean, you tell me. I th- I think there's a eight or nine or ten other teams who could easily show up a championship weekend if they get hot and play well or get the right matchups. You know, teams like like Virginia, like Syracuse, like Penn. Uh, even Notre Dame, who I'm looking at, who's seven and five, man, they are—they have some talent on that team. Uh, if they ever figured out their goaltending spot, they—they'd be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, man, it is. It seems like there's a lot of parity this year. Is that—is that just growth of the game? A lot of good high school players finding their way to different schools. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, you—you you see it out out west. Uh, these rosters now are so national in scope. Kids, good, good, really good athletes who are now choosing to play lacrosse at the youth level or at the middle school level are, are becoming great players, and, and the game continues to grow at the high school level. But at the college D1 level, it's been fairly, you know, I don't want to say stagnant. It's grown but tiny increments. You know, Utah, Michigan years ago, uh, Cleveland State, you know, Hampton. But but the growth at the D1 level hasn't mirrored that of the high school level, so the pool of players is growing. The other thing is, you know, the, the level of coaching, the level of commitment from these programs has gone through the roof, too. You know, you think about some of these smaller schools, you know, in a MAC, let's say, Canisius or Monmouth or Mount St. Mary's. Like, the, the, the level of commitment from all of these schools now has, has been raised, and, and that's kind of pushed everybody forward. And it's a great thing because, you know, when I first started this, there was about a handful of schools who took lacrosse like a true Division One sport. And, and now – Quite honestly, there's you know sixty or seventy that that are all going uh, full tilt. Yeah, that's great. Well, you mentioned Penn State is sort of the, it is the, they are the unanimous number one right now. Um, do they seem like they're much better than everybody else right now, or is there another team or couple of teams that you think are right there with them this year? Uh, the one thing I would say, I, I think based on performance and based on the balance of their roster and their coach, Jeff Tambroni, they don't have a glaring weakness. They're pretty deep at the midfield in terms of depth of scoring. They have two stars on offense and Grant Amon uh, and the shooter, Mac O'Keefe. Their defense is really athletic. Chris Sabia, uh, 16, is he's just stands out. And they have a really strong faceoff guy. Uh, the only thing they don't have is playoff experience. Yeah. And, you know, what's that worth? I, I don't know. You know, I never experienced that. Every team I ever played for, like, expected to win every game we ever played. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've never been in that locker room on a team 
that that's never won a playoff game. And then all of a sudden you're the number one seed. So I'm not sure what that's going to be like. I, yeah. I think they're going to get a, a, a kind matchup in their first round playoff game. But, you know, come quarterfinal weekend, you know, who knows how they're going to respond. But I, I think that their only challenge to Philadelphia is themselves. And, yeah. and if it impacts their performance, because they, they got a lot of a lot of talent. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're calling the ACC tournament this weekend, which is always uh, really, really fun. Great close games every year. Um, what's your prediction for how it goes this weekend? Who do you think comes out on top? Uh, it was interesting. I was just uh, texting with Anish. I'm ca- calling these games with Anish and Paul, uh, who I gave up for Lent to go cover some hockey and wrestling, but we're back <laughs> together again. And, and I mean, I wish we could televise our texts. Uh, but, you know, I was like, you know, Anish, Virginia's the number one seed, but I'm not sure. I, I, I think the Cavs might be like third or fourth most likely to win it. Wow. Uh, I, I look at Duke as probably the most likely. Mm-hmm. Syracuse is playing the best right now. And you go back to that Syracuse-Virginia game, if those two teams would meet on Saturday. And that was a game that Syracuse really should have won. And that, that was the, when Virginia was in their comeback mode. They were winning all these games with these great comebacks. So yeah. that could be a different game. Uh, and then Notre Dame, as I just said, at 7-5, and five, they got talent, Chris. I mean, yeah. You, you have you Brian Costabile is a tremendous shooting midfielder. Brendan Gleason is an amazing playmaker. Connor Marin, the sophomore attacker they have from uh, New Jersey, this this kid is tearing it up all of a sudden. He makes it look so easy, so skilled, and they're more athletic. I think I think back in the day, some of those Notre Dame, Notre Dame teams were a little bit kind of land of the misfit toys physically, mm-hmm. but these these guys are animals. I mean, Morrison um, Meyer, who's you know his dad, Rick. Played in the NFL. He's a second line midi at 6'2, 200. They, they got highly recruited defenders. So it wouldn't surprise me if they gave Duke a, a tremendous game on, on Saturday afternoon. So this this thing's pretty wide open. Uh, a Carolina win would be truly surprising. Nothing else would would uh, would phase me. All right. So pick the championship game and then give me a winner. Just take stab in the dark. I'll go Duke Syracuse. Oh, breaking my heart there. Well, you know, you guys, you guys still got to got to prove it, got to yeah. prove it. And if uh, Krause's health is is a is a concern, yeah, it is. You know, Duke. I I think Duke's pretty strong. Two teams I don't think they're going to match up with that well with down the road would be Yale and Penn State because of faceoffs. Uh, Cuse playing well right now. Uh, that trying to think that game was won by Cuse on a miracle comeback so I think Duke wins this time if yeah. Duke plays Cuse yeah Syracuse was kind of lucky to win that last game I thought yeah. they were getting killed I was shocked they, 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 they couldn't score for most yeah. of the game that's right till the fourth quarter well we talk about all these ACC teams like they're like they are so good and they are and back when I was playing it was if that was the you know yeah, was that was cool. the best conference all the Best players kind of wanted to go there and went there. But looking at the top 20 rankings this year, there hasn't been an ACC team ranked number one yet. And in the top four right now, there's only one. Um, Is the ACC down this year or are all these other teams better? I think the other teams are catching them to a certain degree. This has been a pretty good year, though, for the ACC. They they lead nationally in terms of win percentage uh, ahead of the Big Ten. uh, So why are they ranked? higher uh because they all have absorbed some losses you know you look at duke at 11 and 3 virginia 11 and 3 
the, you know, two locks for the playoffs that they, they would be. Syracuse looks pretty strong for an at-large in hosting a game at 9-3. and three. And then Notre Dame, even though they're 7-5, and five, if they win one more game or even if they don't, I think they have a pretty strong at-large resume. They'll probably have to go on the road, though. And then Carolina, 7-6, and six, uh, really no horrendous losses, but they just don't have enough without winning this without winning at least two more games, I think. So mm-hmm. I, I, you're going to see three teams probably from the ACC hosting first round playoff games. You, and you're likely to see a fourth unless there's some, you know, massive bid stealing. So the league's been strong this year. I mean, you look at the big 10 and Maryland's really good. Obviously Penn state's the number one team in the country, but after that, there's a drop off. Yeah. You know, uh, Hopkins is, is not having a great season. Ohio state's kind of a built up record. They did beat Notre Dame, but, but they're not playing as well as their record. And then Michigan's still at the bottom of the pack. So uh, the ACC still is the best conference in D- Division One lacrosse. Cool. Well, as a TV analyst, you've covered every Final Four since 95. Give us two or three of your best memories that you've seen watching the Final Four over the years. It's amazing because, like, my mind works where I can't remember very much <laughs> until until someone will show me is a that box life, score. Is that life as a goalie? Just too many? Yeah, I think it's, moving, it's always moving forward. You know, yeah. like people ask me, hey, what do you cover? I forgot what I covered last weekend. <laughs> it's really weird. It's the, you flush and move on uh, yeah, with everything, whether it's you covering football or lacrosse. But no, I, there are certain memories. I mean, that first game always stands out in, in 1995. Uh, I the first game, I think that day was the Johns Hopkins undefeated team playing Maryland. And when Brian Doherty had like 27 saves and Maryland upset Hopkins yeah. uh, in the semifinals. And that was a day that I learned that you needed to put be put put beyond your your loyalties to your school. <laughs> uh, and and that taught me quickly that that uh, had to be 50 50 uh, your game in 03. <laughs> right. I mean, in the mud, that that's one that stands out because that was a shocker uh, in that. I think everyone felt that Hopkins was going to roll. Uh, you guys played zone defense and Tillman got got hot. You played a, a tremendous game. That's a game I always remember because of the conditions, how muddy it was. Yeah, it's crazy. Know, Joe, Joe Beninati on the sideline, you know, losing his shoot, just destroying his capizios. <laughs> uh, so there, there's a lot of, you know, I'm just fortunate to have called these games like I, I like to take. Like it's like playing for different coaches, you know. I've called these games with Lee Felsmo and Dave Ryan and uh, Sean McDonough and Ian McEnany and now Anish Shroff, and so they they all we get along differently. Obviously, you're you're playing for a team, uh, but you try to you try to learn from from your teammates. You try to learn from coaches, and so that's what I've tried to always uh, kind of view it as. You know, I'm just a guy on the team. And I, and I have my role. Uh, and, and now as I get more veteran, it's I find myself spending more time trying to make the other guys on our team better, you know, trying to teach the camera guy about what angles are going to, what angles are going to look good on an extra man, you know, who the best players are, what's this player's favorite move, why this, what this goalie does that's a little different or weird, uh, where the emotion is on the sideline. Is it with the coach or is it with the backup goalie? And so little, little those little nuances you know, the more I can pass on now to, to guys with less experience, the better. Yeah, that's cool. Did um, It's clear you get a lot of passion for what you do. Did you always want to be a TV analyst? Like in, when uh, you're at Hopkins, I, were you thinking? No, no, no. no. I, How did you get into for, it? 
I interned for Citibank right out of college, uh, and they asked me to do Hopkins on radio. So there I was one year out of college doing Hopkins radio with a three-man booth, <laughs> Howard Mash and Bill Tanton. And what a, what a great two-year run we had. It was so much fun. And then two years later, they put us on local cable TV. Uh, and so that started. At the same time, the Indoor Lacrosse League was ramping up their coverage on ESPN2. And they had a one-shot deal where they needed a play-by-play guy. And I remember that I drive it up to Philly and doing a demo for this producer named Bill Fitz, who actually produced the first Super Bowl. And uh, I I knew I had done a ton of homework and I knew the guys and I called a good game and, and the guy I was going against wasn't as sharp. And so they, they gave me the gig and I went up to the Boston Garden and did uh, play by play for the indoor league <laughs> three years, three years out of college. And they liked it so much that they said, hey, we want you to be part of our team for all the games. So they threw me on the bench. Uh, 93, 94-ish, you know, right, right out of college. The guy, I was playing with those guys at the time in club. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that was fascinating. That got me kind of in the, the sight of some people at ESPN. And, and when their college coverage went from CBS to ESPN, I was, I was right there for, for, the, for the taking in 95. Wow. Huh. All, the, all the while while having a real job. Uh, and, and then uh, I, I got into the production industry and it was really a struggle. I mean, I, I tell people, you know, your first five to 10 years out of college, if you want to get into broadcasting, can be pretty rough. Uh, you know, while my friends were getting married and buying houses and having kids, I was, you know, struggling to make ends meet, doing what I love to do, but wasn't where I needed to be to, to earn a decent living. And it wasn't until about 10 years out of college that finally I was like, oh, OK, now here's the payoff. Uh, and, it's, and it's been good since. You, um Man, you uh, you mentioned the early NLL days, um, early '90s NLL. Um, I remember watching that stuff growing up. Um, what was it like back then? You, when you're so close to it, I mean, was it very similar to the indoor game now, or was that a different experience? The pro indoor yeah, game. Yeah, it it was the major indoor lacrosse league. Yeah. Uh, okay. Buffalo Buffalo was king. Philly was was gigantic. You know, the gates were in the league. Uh, all the guys I played with were, were playing. I, I would eventually play in that league in 1998-99. So when ESPN gave up the TV, I said, you know, I want to play this. So I went and I was a practice player for the Thunder for two years and finally made the dress roster. But uh, it was it was the Wild West, man. There, you know, there was fights. There was great action. Johnny Tavares, these crowds up in Buffalo and Philly. Uh, and it was, it was the just only a, pro lacrosse. That was, it was the only was it. It was pro indoor lacrosse. Yeah. There was a lot of Americans playing at that time. Uh, it, w- it was uh, it was intense. <laughs> and to play, I don't know if you played indoor, but you play indoor, and it's like lacrosse on on uh, on speed. I mean, <laughs> all your decisions and the contact, everything happens so much faster. You're so much more mentally engaged in every ground ball, every pass, because because it's just condensed and faster. Yeah. You grew up in New York. How'd you get involved with lacrosse initially? Uh, my brothers. I had two older brothers, uh, and I think they're six years older, six and eight years older than me. So I was like, I don't know, four or five, and they'd be playing with their friends in my in the backyard, and I'd be sitting at the window. And then finally, they said, "Hey, come on out, get in goal." Uh, and so, whether it was a hockey goal in the driveway or a lacrosse goal, uh, if I wanted to play with them, that was the that was, you know, I wasn't obviously good enough to run around with guys six and eight years older than me, but they threw me in the net. <laughs> they put a helmet on me and, and 
they, my first chest protector was a Long Island Newsday newspaper that was taped <laughs> up and, and hung around my neck. No way. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. So, so it was, it was survival. You know, you think about being the younger kid in your family. I have a younger sister, but like the younger kids in the family tend to be really good sprinters because they're chasing their older brothers. Uh, they, they tend to be, you know, the, the qualities of, of younger siblings. Uh, and so that's how I got my start. And, and I always played midfield until ninth grade. I played midfield and goalie split equally, Oh, cool. Uh, which, which, which always I felt was uh, a positive that I don't see enough of in, in today's game. Yeah. What made you ultimately stick with goalie? Um, was that a coach or was that you making that decision? No, it was a coach. It was yeah. a coach. I remember I scored three goals my last game in eighth grade. And facing off, and the coach, the varsity coach, was there, and he's like, "Oh, I hope you enjoy this. This will be the last time you, you score three goals in a game." <laughs> Tough so, to fight I, a good my, goalie. My, I mean, with with my with my body type and my my you know being five four at the time in ninth grade, I was probably like five foot four, a hundred. I wrestled, you know, one hundred five. Uh, oh. You know, being a field player was was probably not in my future. So there, there was always safety in the crease as a little guy. <laughs> well, you. It, you had a heck of a playing career. You were a four-time All-American at Hopkins. Uh, I believe you were the first ever freshman goalie to win a national championship. Um, what are some of your best memories from playing at Hopkins? You know, uh, I. It's interesting. I don't like it now. And the further I get away from it, the more I can kind of look back at it. Uh, I mean, obviously winning a national championship, you remember, but, the, but, you know, I, what I miss is I, you know, I miss the locker room. I, yeah. I miss, cause you can't duplicate that. We try to in, in the real world, but it, it's, it's, it's never going to be the same when you develop friendships, when you go through good times and bad times. You know, I, I was on a team of a uh, super close team, uh, really, really close. And, and I felt that that, that won us a lot of games, quite honestly, there, there was a, a trust and a bond and, and a play hard for one another that, that really was stronger than any kind of talent that we had. And, and don't get me wrong. We had hall of fame talent all over our roster, but, uh, so, you know, winning a championship playing in that 80, 89 final was, a, was a, you know, a forever game, a special game. Unfortunately we lost, uh, yeah, but, that was but along the, that was the yeah. famous game with, with Paul and Gary Gade and Petro Paul and Gary right? and Petro. Yeah. Is that the greatest yeah. game of all time? It was a good game. I mean, yeah. you know, talent-wise on the field, the the two programs being at a peak and everyone's seen that game coming for, for years and Petro and Gary and, you know, we had we had uh, Brian Volker and Bill Dwan. They had other Hall of Famers on their team, Zilberti, uh, Tommy Marichek. So the, the cast was – and we knew we knew that game was coming. Uh, you know, it was, it was one of those games we beat them by a goal early in the year and they beat us by a goal in that game. I honestly think we played 100 times – it would be a one or two goal game every single time. Uh, it's just one of those things, you know, you, you know, when you have a, uh, an adversary who's like just as good as you, you know, and, 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 and is hungry and, and tough and well coached and, uh, that it means as much to them. And it's ironic after college, you know, you become close with those guys when you're playing club, uh, because you, you have so many similar experiences. Yeah. Who you mentioned the locker room? I love that 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 stands out for you. Um, who are some of the guys in the Hopkins locker room 
when well, you were playing? I mean, my roommate was his name was Dave Halland, and and he came from the other side of the earth as far as I was concerned. He, you know, he played at Avon. Uh, he wrestled there, and he was a, he was a low recruit who they moved from midfield to long pole, and he had a great career until he tore his ACLs, both of them. Uh, you know, my class, Scott Marr was in my class, uh, the current coach at Albany and the class above me had, was a really strong group. Uh, that was Dave Petromala's group with, you know, uh, Brandon Kelly was a captain, uh, John Wilkins, uh, Pat Russell. They, they were just, uh, James D. Tommaso. That was kind of the core of our team. My class was much smaller. We only had a class of six guys. Hmm. Uh, but so we had a great time, you know, at the time, you know, my, my dad passed away when I was a senior in high school. And there were two other guys in the team who had lost a parent. Uh, and there was about four or five others who were dealing with a divorce. And that was kind of the heyday of divorce back in the 80s when it finally became popular. So half our team were coming from homes that had become to be unideal places, let's say. Uh, still very supportive. But so the team became such a, a part of our family structure and the parents and the tailgating. And we all drew strength in that. You know, I remember on my recruiting trip going to Brendan Kelly's house and the parents treating me to dinner. And I was like, I was like you know, th- this could be my, my home away from home. And, and so that family feeling, I think, got me through what was a, a pretty rough four years. Wow. That's, that's, that's really nice. Was there a player in particular that kind of that, that stands out as like a big brother or somebody that became like a father figure for you? No, no. I mean, not, not, not in, not in particular. And we, we didn't really talk about it much, but you know, like James D. Tommaso, John Wilkins, Steve Ciccaroni, they had all lost, a, you know, lost a parent. Uh, our coaching staff back then, we didn't have the coaching staff rules in terms of the limiting of the staff. So we, there was like seven or 11 coaches who would show up for practice. And those guys became really, you know, I had a position coach every year that was on me at every drill and every stage of practice. And these are quality people. Brian Holman did it for two years. Uh, you know, Doc Matthews, who was an orthopedic, uh, orthopedic surgeon in Baltimore forever. He was at practices. So we were always well taken care of and we could turn to those guys. Um, you know, just, just, you know, how, how are you doing? You know, what, what, what do you got? You know, academics got you down or, you know, girlfriend issues. Uh, so it was, it was, we were, it was, it was a good time to be a college athlete at Hopkins, which is, let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, you, it, we, there was no question you had, you had great support. That's cool. Well, it, it's been a while since Hopkins was the dominant force that they were when you were there. Uh, and in the years after, what, what do you think they need to do to get back on top? Well, I, I think early recruiting, I look at North Carolina, although they did win the title in what, 16. Yeah. I think early recruiting has, has proven to hurt those programs. You know, uh, when, when, when you're a name program, I, I don't think there's any incentive to go out and grab kids early. You know, you look and at they basketball did. and they went, they, they went they very did. early. Yeah. Carolina and Johns Hopkins were the, were the two big name programs that went for early recruiting. You look at college basketball teams like, and I've covered the McDonald's all American game teams like Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, uh, North Carolina, they wait. Okay. And so when the pool of great players shrinks, I mean, I've done McDonald's all American games where there's seven undecided players Wow. and they're waiting to see who's going pro. And then they're waiting to pick between Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, or North Carolina. And in my eyes, 
Hopkins in North Carolina were those teams in lacrosse along with Virginia and Syracuse for so many years. They didn't need to go early. They didn't need to, to be evaluating eighth graders. So that's, that's come, come back to haunt them. And, and from here now, obviously, there's no more early recruiting. I, I just think that the Jays need more athletic midfielders, both, both offensively and defensively. And that's tough, Chris, because you, you know the money guys aren't your D-middies. Okay, they're not they're they're, your, they're not going to get scholarships. But but you're asking those guys to then pay what sixty or seventy thousand to to go to a Johns Hopkins to go to an Ivy League school. And so that's why the best shorties typically are like public school kids who end up playing at at a Towson or a Maryland or an Albany, and they're great athletes who then become great lacrosse players. But it's difficult for those name schools to have those kids pay pay full freight initially. Wow, that's a really interesting point. I never really thought of it like that, but that makes total sense that those public schools would end up with more of those kind of blue collar athletes. The football, types. that good, the good high school football player who was an athlete who maybe didn't show well in the summer events because he was doing another sport, but he was six foot two, two hundred in high school, and then blossomed. You know, a Zach Goodrich from Towson's a guy. You think about Maryland shorties, Loyola for years was you know they'd mine the Salisbury region for for their shorties. Uh, and again, who, who's throwing scholarship money at, at a defensive midfielder? You know, no one can afford that. Uh, that's going to your to your attack and your middies and your stud defender. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. And I never really thought of it that way. Um, well, as, as a player and an analyst, you've seen the game at the highest level for over 30 years now. Um, I'd love to get your opinion on some of the guys you consider to be the best players of all time. Who would you put up there at the top of the list? Well, I mean, having played, you know, Gary Gate and Paul Gate and and Dave Petromala for, uh, at their positions, you know, offensively, like recent history, what Ben Reeves did last year for Yale what was was stands out. Quite honestly, you know, that's a program that had never won a title. He wins a Tuarton Award, puts up gigantic points. All while you know studying for med school, uh, he, he's a guy that stands out. I, I had this debate with someone the other day about Lyle Thompson because you could say that Lyle Thompson is the player of the decade, okay? But he didn't play in any Final Fours. But he kind of transcended lacrosse. You know, he 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 got the game out in the mainstream. He played it at a style that was so different. So he he would have to be on the list. The Powells uh, for Syracuse would would clearly have to be on the list. There's so many in Virginia history that's that stand out to me, uh, but but what Steel Stanwick did back in 2010 was notable. Uh, if that was if I'm if I'm saying the right Stanwick because I get them all confused. <laughs> I think you are. That was it. That was an incredible year. That was an unlike look. Virginia could have won the national title 15 times when Dom was there. Yeah. That was probably the most unlikely year for them to win it. And, well, and that that's you know you know you know what I mean? Yeah, well they could they they released two of their best players from the team right before the playoffs and then they yeah. went on and won the national championship. I remember talking to Dom and Mark Van about that and Mark uh Van Arsdale, who was running the offense that year, basically said, Okay, for the rest of the year, every time we have the ball on offense, it has to go through steel stick. Every single time. And so for the rest of the year, they got the bond offense, go to steal, and they'd go from there. And they would bring a shorty to set a pick on goal line extended, and everybody would kind of move. And 
he had that was one of the best college seasons or best kind of playoff runs. I, that was crazy. I can crazy. remember. Yeah, that was 2011. Excuse me, 2010 was when when Duke won their first title. But no, That's there's right. so many good players, and and again, like I, I, I don't, I like history. Uh, it's hard, it's hard to quantify players' greatness, you know. Uh, and, and as this next two weeks in the NCAA tournament take hold, I, I really think that's where a player can cement themselves. Like, you know, what you did in that 03 championship game, it was notable and memorable. I mean, quite honestly, how many midfielders have played like that in the last 15 years in a, in a championship weekend setting? Very, very few. Let's, let's, you know, guys get two and three goals, but you know, who, who controls the game the, the way you did? So like, don't don't undersell don't undersell that. Uh, well, I appreciate you saying that. It's very kind. That is a great, obviously a very great memory for me. Um, who are some of the so looking forward to this college lacrosse season? Who are the guys that are going to make headlines down the stretch here? Well, the duo I mentioned from Penn State yeah, would have they're to be incredible. at the top of that list. Yeah. Amen. No Keith. Okay, if you're talking Yale, you know T.D. Earl and their Fogo, and and I you know I don't love. Uh, focusing on Fogos, but in his case, I have to, and he's actually a really good lacrosse player and, and a great kid. So I, I don't feel bad about that. Uh, he could be a difference maker for Yale because if he, if he can win 65 plus percent, they're good enough uh, on both ends to, to dominate. When I watch Duke, you know, there's two guys that jump out at me. It's Brad Smith and Nakai Montgomery. Mm-hmm. You know, Smith's kind of got that hammer of a mid range shot down the alley or curling top side and Montgomery now with his change of direction, his jump shot on the run, but his ability to pass, yeah. uh, you know, we, I, I asked, uh, Donowski earlier this week, I said, you know, how'd you teach Nakai to pass? And you know what it's like for midfielders coming out of high school, just opening up and finding skips and seams, something Kyle Dixon, I always thought did really well yeah. was, was off the dodge, being able to like throw the ball behind him to, to the far side of the field where the guy was standing nude. Uh, but Nakai's now starting to figure that out and it's, it's really fun to watch. Uh, you know, there, there's guys who else am I excited to see? I, I, uh, I'm trying to think, give, give me some teams. I'll give you some guys. Oh, uh, Jared Bernhard. I yeah. Think. Bernhard is the next name. I, think, I would have I think listed. He's highly underrated. He looks unstoppable every, to me. Why? Exactly. Well, yeah. Every time he touches the ball, something good happens. And I, I was talking to a, to a Maryland fan. He thinks that John Tillman, hasn't gone to that steel Stanwick offense yet yeah. because they know they can, but they want the other guys to develop first. But that, that kid with the ball in a stick, he, he, at times he is completely unstoppable. And obviously as is Pat Spencer for Loyola. God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There are a lot of great players this year. Uh, yeah. It's going to be fun. Well, um, how about the program, the pro game as an announcer, you've called all the Every year of uh, MLL, MLL yeah. since 01. What, what do you think of the new PLL this year? Um, what's your take on that? And, and where do you think pro outdoor lacrosse goes in the next five years? I don't know. You know, again, I have this discussion. Like, PLL is doing all the right things. They have, they're, they're, they've aligned themselves with, with all the right people. I like the venues that they've chosen. And believe it or not, I, I do like that all-star format of taking the game to the people. So instead of asking for season tickets, we're just coming to your town once a summer and you better be there. So I think that that has a chance for success. Now, why they needed six teams for this model, I don't know. Uh, and, and in the process, they've damaged Major League Lacrosse, uh, a, a league that's been around forever that gave birth to them. But that's a story for a different day. So 
getting the games on NBC, a huge plus. Playing in these arenas, a huge plus. The marketing, the social media, everything points in a positive direction. But at the end of the day, my biggest question is, you know, can professional lacrosse be a sustainable entity? You know, whether it's promoted by anybody, you know, can you sell tickets? Can you sell sponsorships? And and I still think that that model is shaky at best. I mean, uh, I've lived it. I've seen it. You know, uh, when MLL started, the players were making 30 grand a summer and everything seemed fine and dandy. But but gradually over time, that didn't grow. It actually shrunk. Uh and, and so I'm just not sure if pro lacrosse played during the summer is a sustainable commodity. I'd love to think it, it could be. I've been involved with it. I've traveled the country covering it. The product is amazing. Uh, that's the one thing that I don't know if the college fan really gets is how good that the pro product is. Uh, seen amazing things. Every game I go cover, something happens that I'd never seen before or never dreamt of or never thought was possible on the lacrosse field. Like every single game. The, the, the speed, the skill, the athleticism, the creativity, the intensity, the hitting, the saves, like it, every game I walk away like, wow, that was really cool. I've never seen, I've never seen a player attack the goal like that and, and score like that. It and, is and crazy so how good the level of play is. How I mean, good? It really no. is. Everybody and you go down so to good. the field. Yeah. You go down to the field as, as a guy who watches the college game and I'll be walking around warmups. And I remember covering my first Bayhawks game last summer. I walked by, I think Miles Jones was there and I go, I go, Miles, this doesn't look like Memorial Day anymore out here. I mean, <laughs> the guys are absolutely gigantic and can run. And and everybody, you know, has massive amounts of skill for their position level. It, it, I'm not sure the, the common fan has an appreciation. And then for the physical nature of that league. Because back in the day, guys, you know, the rules were a little lenient. And, and guys would pay the price for going over the middle. It was a rough, rough league. Yeah. I remember one of my first games uh, – Halfway through the game, we, I was playing on, I think I was, yeah, I was playing on the uh, Barrage, Bridgeport Barrage when they were around. And one of the first games we played Rochester and Ryan and Casey Powell were both on the team about halfway through the first quarter. Out of nowhere, somebody like kind of hits Ryan late and out of nowhere is a brawl on the field. It's like Ryan go, Powell goes after somebody. Casey comes out of nowhere. And all of a sudden there's like a pile of people and I'm, I'm like, fighting is allowed. What is happening right now? It was just, it was crazy. Uh, fun times. Well then, all right. If the level of play is so good and why don't more people go to these games? What, what is, why can't more than, you know, 5,000 people go see a MLL game? I don't know. I mean, you know, I go and I have a great time. Obviously, I'm working, but but I, again, I walk away with like, wow, that was cool. Would I bring my family to a game? Yes. Would I bring my family to seven games over the course of the summer? Be a season ticket holder? Probably not. Uh, you know, so maybe so less is more, and you really have to strategically plan the, the plant the games on the calendar so that people can go there. We have. If you have a young, I have a young uh, nine-year-old daughter. She's in fourth grade, so like our schedule's already mapped out for the summer. Our schedule's like mapped out for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> so you know, putting a plug-in events in, uh, you know, it's important to to get your events out, and and then we can target the two or three lacrosse games we want to go to as a family uh, or with her friends. Uh, so so there's that. Uh, you know, the, it's a competitive sports market. But their product, I think the strength of their product is is it's accessible. So, you know, you can get a really good seat. You can get autographs from the players. You, you know, it's it's a 
kind of like a minor league baseball feel compared to uh, let's say an NBA game or an NHL game. And I think I think there's there's pluses in that because some of these you know NFL games they're they're a little corporate these days. You know they're a little um, it's it's a drink fest for for part of the crowd, but then it's also like a schmooze session for for people in the club area. It's a, where you go to be seen, not to watch the game. Hmm. Uh, That's a good point. Well. You mentioned being a father. So as a father and a coach, you see the game at the youth level. What's the state of the youth game from your perspective? And if you could make any improvement, improvements to it, what would they be? Well, it's it's not good. It's not good. I mean, my, my daughter is my daughter is a, a gymnast. She tried lacrosse and had a had a really bad experience at a local summer camp, believe it or not, where they made her go in a porta potty. It was like 105 degrees on the field. What? So she yeah, as a seven year old. So she wouldn't. She hasn't gone back in like two summers, so we'll see. But she, she's – again, I've always vowed not to be like the crazy parent, but she's on the gymnastics trail right now. That's far more time commitment than lacrosse. I mean yeah. she's going to practice 12 hours a week, for, you know, four nights a week times three hours. As a fourth grader, as a nine-year-old, <laughs> okay, plus meets. Wow. So – but at, from lacrosse, you know, I, I just wish that kids would play more pickup, you know, because I, I learned to play in the backyard. I learned to play against the wall at school. I learned to play with my friends in the tennis courts, on the fields. And then finally, when I was old enough, you know, we had a great rec program in my town. It was 25 bucks. And, and as a third grader, you know, I signed up and, and I ended up playing with many guys who ended up playing in college. One of them made the world team, Scott Hiller uh, from UMass, and you know, who's current assistant coach at Northwestern. He, My he old was, coach, he, Scotty coached me in Boston. Okay. So Scotty would drive his dad, his dad was working at Hofstra and he didn't live in our town, but because our rec program was so good, he'd drive over. And, and so he was on our team. <laughs> uh, I saw him last week and, and we had great memories and, but it was, all they were doing was adding structure because we had already played lacrosse. You know, we were, we were doing three on twos in the backyard and we were constantly shooting on goals. We'd go to all the varsity games. And then during the halftime, we'd run on the field and shoot on the goal. So we had skills. We just needed, we didn't have any structure. And I think the, the nowadays it's like kids go play lacrosse and then the stick stays in the, in the trunk of the car. Yeah. You know, I, you know, that that's for us, it was kind of what we did. Oh, and then we can play this for real and put on jerseys and like be on the same team. This is great. Uh, yeah, and then playing with your friends. Like I never, I've always played with my friends in my town, and yeah. and uh, there was just that was uh, that was organic. And I was very lucky to grow up in the in the town I did. We didn't have anything fancy in our town, but but we had a a real uh, commitment to lacrosse, the Limburg Titans, and then we had great coaches at at the high school level, and uh, so many kids benefited from that. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Well, Quinn, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for, for taking time. Um, hope you have a great ACC tournament this weekend. And I hope yeah, your predictions fun. are not actually accurate in that Virginia. I'm not in the prediction business. Okay? I'm, not in, I'm not in the prediction business. If Krause uh, plays, I like Virginia's chances. They're a different team without I like I like yeah. Lars a lot. He's, he's, uh, he's, I, I think he's, he's doing a super job there, uh, yeah. really is bringing in good kids and running things the right way. But no, this is exciting. ACCs and then beyond uh, selection Sunday, May 5th, and then obviously the tournament. This is the easy time of year where we just kind of have to shut up and, and let the great games play themselves out. So are both games on on Saturday on ESPNU? Yeah. 2 and 4.30 ESPNU Saturday. Awesome. Weather should be good. We're down at, we're, we'll be in Chapel Hill. Should be good. We'll be watching. Thanks so much, Quint. Talk to you Thanks, later. Thanks, Chris. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.